Do I think that I would be a hell of a president? Yes, because the elected officials would respond to what the people wanted to hear. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a special show for you this week. I am joined by the legendary Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A. is, of course, the host of First Take on ESPN, the producer and host of a great new podcast called No Mercy, and the author of a new memoir, Straight Shooter. He also might be the most beloved sports commentator in America. I called him up to discuss his new book, his incredible career, which started in newspaper reporting, being friends with Fox News hosts, and whether he sees a future in late night comedy or political office. Stephen A., thanks so much for coming on the show today. How are you doing? My pleasure, Aiden. How are you? I'm happy to be here. What's going on? Your new book, which is really beautiful and it's an inspiring read, it details your incredible journey from a tough childhood to climbing the ladder in the media, working in the newspaper industry, uh, to really getting to the top of the media industry. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you wanted to do when you set out to write this book. Well, obviously, you want to motivate and inspire. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. You certainly don't want to write a book just to vent or just to express yourself or whatever. There has to be a higher purpose than that. And my higher purpose is always highlighting trials and tribulations and showing how they've been overcome uh, by a variety of people. In this particular instance, since it was my book, it was about mine. And, you know, obviously, really detailing what I went through from the time I was a kid to what I went through as an adult in the professional ranks of this industry and what have you. There's been a lot of ups and downs, a lot of things that I've gone through, but especially in this day and age where you see mental health is really taking on a light. The issue of mental health is really taking on a life of its own. And so many people are just ready to give up uh, because they feel like those trials and tribulations are never going away. You know, I wanted to be or, or to provide a testimony to the fact that eventually it does go away. And there may be new challenges that come your way. There may be new obstacles that are placed in your path. But in the end, when you're focused and you're determined um, and you want it bad enough, you can overcome anything. And that's the kind of message I wanted to send. I, I want to talk about your your career, too, in, in journalism. We actually have something in common. I was a crime reporter at the Daily News. That was one of my first jobs in uh, in media, which uh, I know you were you, you had a brief stint as a crime reporter before going yes. becoming a sports reporter. And yeah. that was how a lot of people used to start their careers in newspapers. That was kind of the first job that you had to do. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? Nightmarish, nightmarish. Uh, number one, being a novice, just getting into the industry, um, you got to learn how to write. You got to learn the inverted pyramid theory to win what, you know, wh who, what, where, when, why, and ultimately how. And you got to learn all of those things. You got to know how to be succinct in your writing. You got to dot your I's and cross your T's, uh, religiously focused on the facts. All of those things are true. But after all of that homework that you do, you know this just as well as I do because you probably did it longer and you probably did it better than the four to five months that I was on the beat. I just got there just to do it. Uh, it was a segue into my uh, role as a high school reporter. I just had to start out there first because the high school support department was killed for a little while before it was brought back to life. But in the end, you know this just as well as I do. You're doing all of that work and stuff only to see 500 or 600 words in print. 
You know, it's not like they give you an abundance of space to really show your writing chops and mm. show what you're capable of doing with the written word. And so for me, it, it was it was something that was rewarding later on. But while I was doing it, it was nightmarish uh, because you saw crime, you saw deaths. Uh, you had to speak to people who had lost loved ones and stuff like that, be a bit invasive in that regard. It was not pleasant at all, to say the least. Yeah, I still remember the the first time I had to knock on the door of uh, someone who had lost their son, yeah. and uh, you, you really never forget that. And they and they warn you. Yeah, editors warn you when you're first setting out to do it that it's going to be really really tough. Yeah. Um, now after that, you had a, you had a long career in newspaper writing. Now, uh, an incredibly successful career in broadcasting. You went back to write for this book. Did you enjoy going back to writing to to do this book? The word enjoyment, I think, I don't, I don't think that says it. Um, when I'm writing about the relationship that I had with my father, that wasn't enjoyable. Um, when I'm writing about the trials and tribulations my mother had to endure, that wasn't enjoyable. When I wrote about my mother's passing and ultimately my father's passing, that certainly wasn't enjoyable. Um, and writing about the challenges in my professional career, um, you know, particularly at ESPN. It wasn't enjoyable revisiting those things either. I thought it was necessary because in the seat that I sit in with the success that I've been very, very blessed and fortunate to have being, you know, the star first take and the show has been number one for 11 and a half years and stuff like that. I just felt like if you're going to do a book, it's going to be a memoir. You got to do it right. And you got to let people know what's most important. No one ever knows everything. No one tells all their truths. But when you speak, make sure that what you're speaking about is truthful and you are as forthcoming and as honest and as transparent and candid as you possibly can be. And so that's what I did. And in doing so, um, it was a challenge to say the least, because particularly the part where it was revisiting my mother, um, her suffering and then ultimately her passing away years later. That was incredibly painful for me because of the, you know, as you know, writing a book, you got to, you know, you go to the editors come and they got a thousand questions for you. Right. And it got to a point where there was like a two or three month stretch where I was reliving this every day. And spiritually, it was beating me down. Mm. But it wasn't their fault. It wasn't the fault of Simon and Schuster or anybody else. It was the subject matter that I was broaching. If this was about ESPN, that would have been different. Uh, but to have to relive what you wrote about your, you know, your mother's passing as close as my mother and I were, that was very, very painful for me. And it took a lot of the enjoyment out of it, to be quite honest with you. Again, I knew it was necessary. Um, you got to let people know who you are, what you stand for, why you stand for, what you stand, where you get your perspectives from. All of those things were important. Um, but writing about my relationship with my father and in particular, the passing of my mother was very, very, very hard. Right. Uh, did you feel any sense of catharsis when it was done? Um, to some degree, I guess so. Um, when it comes to my father, I think that um, what hit home for me was my sisters, because before the book came out to print, I sent my sisters the chapters that I had written on my on my parents and they didn't talk to me for two weeks. And I thought they were mad, but it wasn't that they were mad. It's that they were trying to cope with it themselves. 
because so much had happened to me, it happened to them too. We were all in the house together. And to endure what we endured, they had long, long, long ago buried those memories. Mm. And for me to write what I wrote in Straight Shooter, um, it, it just basically cropped up those feelings that they had buried. And so now they had to live with my father's transgressions, my father's neglect, um, the mother, my mother's pain and suffering and all of that stuff. They had to deal with all of that and they had to relive that to some degree over again. And that was very, very difficult for them to do. So it took them a couple of weeks to get over that. But when they ultimately read the book in its entirety and they saw everything that I wrote, they actually came to me and said, you were actually nice. You could have said a lot worse about dad than you actually did. They were actually surprised that I wasn't even hard, that I, I wasn't harsher than I was. Now, you have this broadcasting career. You spend a, a, a prodigious amount of time on air giving your opinions on everything from sports to politics. How do you prepare every day for that? Is there a massive amount of research that goes into it? Is is it just innate at this point? Like what, what sort of preparation are you doing before going it's on innate, air? It, it's innate at this point because it's my life. Um, you know, the things that I do on the side, uh, you know, it's it's when I have time available. Of course, I'm a parent. I'm a dad. So that's my priority. Um, I'm an uncle. That's a priority. I'm a little brother to four older sisters. That's still a priority. Um, I've got friends and loved ones that are part of my inner circle and they keep me balanced and they keep my spirits high because being around them uh, just drapes me with a feeling of, a, of normalcy. And regularity, it's like, it's you know, I'm not Stephen A, I'm just Stephen. None of them call me Stephen A, I'm Steve. Oh, I'm Stephen. That's it, you know, and 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 those are my boys and these are people that I grew up with. So stuff like that, yeah, but I, I think that when you you look at everything else, it's just, um, it's, it's difficult to put into words, to be quite honest with you, because with all the things that I do, um, you know, you just live it. You can't be great in this business and you just trying to get over, you know, people got to know you're entrenched in this. And so, you know, for me, traveling on the road over 200 days out of the year for over 20 years, I did that. Being a beat writer, I did that. Interviewing coaches, players, owners, league officials, I did that. Still cultivating contacts and resources in the business today. I've been doing all of that. and. It's because wherever I'm at, I'm either reading about it, I'm watching it on television, or listening to or about those subjects on radio. I don't stop unless I, I unless it's time for me to get some sleep. Mm. Outside of that, I'm just on it. It's not what I do. It's how I live. Now, we live in a time where any and all comments are dissected to death on social media. They can get people in trouble. They can end careers even. Yep. And you have this reputation as someone who speaks with absolute honesty about everything. I was I read a story in the source this morning uh, that you said you don't like strip clubs because of how they smell. <laughs> how cautious are you on the air, knowing that anything you say is is going to get dissected on social media? Do you self censor at all? Yes, but I self censor because I'm responsible. I strive to be, not because I'm careful. What I mean by that is Aiden, I represent ESPN, which is owned by Walt Disney. So 
you know what? I don't want to say the wrong things, meaning you don't want to curse and stuff like that over FCC airwaves. You don't want to come across as insensitive when you're representing the brand. You have to be responsible enough to recognize that you don't represent just yourself when you have these airwaves available to you. You represent a commodity, an entity that employs you. So in that regard, the word, you know, uh, just being responsible comes to comes to light. But I don't want to say careful because I think that when you say careful, what happens is, is that we have so many people that do believe in being so, quote unquote, careful that they come across as very phony and inauthentic. And that's that's not something I'm going to allow to happen to me. That is the ultimate taboo in a line of work that I do. When people look at me, for better or worse, I want them to know I mean exactly what the hell I say, and I say what I mean. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm devoid of errors. I mean, it's well chronicled. We know I've made mistakes over the years in terms of what's come out of my mouth. But what's come out of my mouth that has gotten me into trouble is a word or sentence or perspective, per se, that might have been disseminated. It's never my intent. It's not my intent to disregard. It's not my intent to not care about my what my employer thinks. It's not my intent to not care about what I'm saying about another human being or whatever the case may be. But it is my intent to come across as authentic and as real as I can possibly be about whatever subject matter I'm broaching as responsible as I can pull it off in this day and age. And although it gets old, um, it gets very, very tiring and grating at times because, I mean, my God, I'm not on tape delay. My show's live. You know, I don't have the luxury of a seven-second delay or a taped show that you can go back and edit and omit the things that I say. I don't have that luxury. I'm literally speaking live extemporaneously off the cuff on live television. That can get grating at times, but I've said this to ESPN and I've said this to anybody publicly and I'll never apologize for it because I mean it. The only thing that's hard about it is ESPN because ES because of how ESPN may react to the tsunami of criticism that might come my way. I'm the type of person that if I did something wrong, I'll apologize. You know, if I if I believe I'm right, I don't give a damn if an army is against me. I'll still stand up and say, I believe I'm right. And I don't worry about the criticism. I only worry about how my bosses are going to feel about that criticism. There is a difference. What What do you make of the argument that politics and political conversation should be totally separate from sports, right? That when people say that, okay, ESPN should not delve into politics at all. What do you make of that? I think they're not living in the real world. And in fairness to you, I've told this to Guys like Sean Hannity, to Mark Levin, to Chris Cuomo, to Don Lemon and others, Karen Hunt and others, you damn right I've said it to them. They've come to me and they've said, oh, sports should have no place in politics. I said, stop it. The fact of the matter is, no matter what industry you're in, you're going to find elements that breed from it that are nothing more than a microcosm of life and what's going on in the real world. And to act like that doesn't exist is just foolish. Now, what I will say, however, is that you can take it too far. When Jimmy Pataro, the president of ESPN, chairman of ESPN, a chairman of Disney, I'm sorry, and president of ESPN came along years ago after taking over and following the departure of John Skipper, 
Jimmy Pataro wanted us to veer away from politics. I completely supported that decision. Here's why. Because it got to a point where practically most of our commentary was political. And we weren't given the audience what the audience expected. It's a sports network. Give them sports. Now, you can sprinkle politics into the mix, but to have political debates when people are tuning in expecting sports, you're not paying attention to the viewer. The numbers showed it. The ratings showed it. The revenue showed it. So when Jimmy Pataro took that stance, I completely and totally supported him. But he was also smart enough to recognize that's not a stance we could maintain when the George Floyd situation came about. Because obviously you had the sports community transfixed on what happened with George Floyd. You had riots going on throughout the streets of America. You don't get to sit back then and say, ignore all of that. We're going to focus on nothing but sports. Now you're alienating the viewer because you're not listening to what their concerns are. Most of the time they were concerned about sports. So you're right to take that position. But when there's a time when it calls upon a time to deviate from that momentarily to address more important issues because the sports world is transfixed on that, then you have an obligation to touch on that, too. And I thought that we handled that exceptionally well in that regard. Before Jimmy Pataro came along, we got too damn political. Once Jimmy Pataro came on board and gave that mandate, I completely agreed with him. He made total sense. We followed that mandate. And then when it was time to deviate from sports from time to time, he had no problem with it because it was after we reminded the audience, we didn't forget you. We know you expect us to do sports and that's what we're giving you. Even though we might touch on this for this moment, for these few minutes, we still didn't forget about you. And that's, and that's good business. And that's just, that's just intelligence. Hmm. You mentioned Sean Hannity there. I know that you have a, a relationship with Sean Hannity and you've appeared on his show. You've appeared on Mark Levin's show on Fox News as well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, uh, and obviously you guys uh, disagree on a lot of issues politically. Yes. I'm curious yes. what you have thought of the latest revelations that we've gotten from Fox News and if you've been following it in the Dominion case, showing the extent to which Fox hosts and executives mm -hmm. were airing these allegations that the 2020 election was stolen, despite knowing that they were false and wackadoodle mm -hmm. behind the scenes. Have you been mm -hmm. following that? What's your take on it? I haven't been following that at all, but I will comment. I won't run from the issue. I'll tell you exactly what I think based on, again, I haven't been following it. I will tell you this. Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, guys like that have always been sports fans. I've known them because they ran into me and they would bring me on to discuss sports. I would also remind the audience that when they'd have me on back in the day, it was when I was unemployed and ESPN had let me go. And so I always remembered that. Okay. And my whole issue with them is, is what I say. It's just a issue. My whole position with them is what I'd say to anybody. You believe what you believe, but don't come to me telling me what I should believe. OK, we can debate back and forth. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal what I'm going to say. And I won't take personal what you say. OK, because I joke around with both. And I think y'all crazy with some of these views that y'all have. I can't understand. I can't understand it. I can't believe it. You know, what I'm saying? but ultimately what happens is particularly when you are black and 
Unfortunately, in our society, if you get along with somebody on the conservative side, far more often than not, conservatives are viewed in not the most in not the greatest light imaginable. And obviously, racism is thrown out there and all of this other stuff. My position in talking to them was I never got that feeling. I've run across people that I felt immediately with some racist bastards. I've never viewed them that way. When I speak to a guy like Sean Hannity, national security, free market capitalism, protect our borders. Well, guess what? I know a lot of black people that feel that way, that vote Democrat all day, every day. So their position is it's not necessarily political. It's common sense. We just got to find a way to compromise and come together. So that's where my relationship emanates from them, not agreeing with them, but making sure they know that. As it pertains to this story about Fox and all of this stuff, if there's truth to that, damn it, they were wrong. Plain and simple. I'm not here to I'm not here to apologize. Sean Hannity's a grown ass man. OK. And so are all I and, you know, he's really the one person, him and, and, and Brian Kilmeade. I knew him from years ago when I used to come over there and, and, and make appearances as well. Uh, uh, Payne as well, that, that does business on the business side. Good dude. I know them or whatever. They know what I agree and disagree about. And Sean Hannity having himself caught up in this, that's unfortunate. I'm not here to defend him or anything. What I will say to you, however, is this. A, it's not going to stop me from being cool with him, number one. And number two, part of the reason why is the cynicism that I feel for the whole political apparatus altogether. And here's what I mean by that. This is what I've known about Sean. Sean could deny it till the cows come home. But as he would tell you, I've known him for years. I'm exaggerating here. Please don't get me wrong. But somebody, a conservative, can sit up there and harm somebody in the streets in front of a million people. Sean Hannity would say the Democrats did it first. The Democrats did it first. That was that. That was them. See, and he'll have he'll have a laundry list of transgressions similar to what the conservatives did to show you the hypocrisy about the way conservatives are treated compared to the way liberals are treated. His whole objective, conservative to the core, and he is completely and utterly against liberals and Democrats. And so for me, when I think about politicians and I think about political commentators, particularly in this day and age. I don't view them as these lying, scoundrel, no good bastards. I don't view folks like that. I view them as being unfortunately yet extremely partisan, whatever it takes for our side to win. That's the rules of their game, which is why I have no desire to be involved in it on that level. You did weigh in recently on, I think last week, on Tucker Carlson for his spin about January 6th. What did you think of that? It pissed me off. Like I said, it did. And I'm not apologizing because to me, we can say it's politics. Five people were killed. Thousands of people stormed the U.S. Capitol. Aiden, if you go into a bank and you rob the bank and you race out of the damn bank and jump into my car and I'm driving the getaway car, am I not complicit? 
I believe I am. For, for Tucker Carlson to go on national TV and to highlight how everyone wasn't violent. The fact of the matter is they followed the people in. They got in because the violent protesters kicked that, kicked in windows, kicked down doors, rushed, bum rushed through law enforcement officials, was screaming, hang Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, by the way, with his family in the Capitol. Okay, they wanted uh, to get, they were looking for Nancy Pelosi. And oh, because they came in before you and you walked in peacefully, that means you weren't violent. Well, they preceded your arrival. None of you were supposed to be there. It's like it's an insult to our intelligence to sit up there and say, hey, everyone wasn't violent. Everyone didn't have to be. If you, Aiden, got into a fight, if you and I were together and you got into a fight and you beat somebody's ass and knocked them out, why would I need to go knock them out? You already did it. So when Tucker Carlson points something like that out, it's like you are smart enough to know that's bullshit that you're spewing. You know better than that. And again, if we were talking about a policy difference or whatever, that would be different because I really wouldn't get into that because I'm not as knowledgeable as somebody as him who does it every day. Somebody like yourself or a multitude of other people. It's not what I do every day. I might have an opinion about something here and there, but I don't I, I'm not learned. I'm not an aficionado in that category. But to me, this was common sense. And to go on national television and try to give us paint a different picture of what we saw, it was beyond spitting in our face and telling us it's raining. And that was my only point to Tucker Carlson. Say anything you want, but to sit up there and to show us a video of peaceful protesters who entered the U.S. Capitol after it was kicked in and stormed and law enforcement officials were bum-rushed and elected officials were literally running for their lives, to sit up there and say, well, not every single person was violent. That Come on, man. Just every single person didn't get arrested either. We know that. But that is so far beyond the point. And it's stuff like that that makes you sit up there and say, see, we can't trust none of their asses because of stuff like that. When he first made the comments, I remember thinking like, well, if if you and I showed up at somebody's house, punched them in the face, knocked down their door, and then I go and sit and watch TV, yeah. I'm still going to get arrested. If you, <laughs> somebody, if, if, if you hang in with five of your boys... And your boys bum rushed the house, kicked the door in, and literally invade the dude's house. And all you did was walk in after them and sit down and watch TV. All of y'all are getting arrested. Right. All uh, of you. <laughs> you said uh, you've said recently that you want to or you're, you, you'd love to be a, a late night host at some point. Now, mm -hmm. CNN is rumored to be looking for a late night show. Mm -hmm. Would you consider that? I guess I'd consider it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very, very happy. Um, I'm very happy at ESPN. When I was talking late night, I was talking late night like Kimmel, you know, succeeding Jimmy Kimmel someday. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's great. Please don't go away, Jimmy. You know, because I, I don't know if I could ever be as good as him. But if he was gone, would I like a shot of it? Sure. Absolutely. That's the kind of late night that I was talking about. Um, but what I would tell you is that if an opportunity like that presented itself, I couldn't summarily dismiss it. Mm. I would tell you that 
you know, I listen, I, I have to put myself on, on front street. I was I'm I listen, I think that Sean Hannity, if if you believe in what he believes in, he's got a great show. I think Bill O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly, say what you want about him. For damn near 20 years, he was number one every week and every month and every year of his show, The O'Reilly Factor, being on the air. I think he did a damn good job. I'm a huge fan, huge fan, and we get along very well with Chris Cuomo. I, I, I think if CNN was smart, they'd call him back. I think they'd call him back and bring and, and beg him to come back to CNN because he is he's a brilliant, brilliant man. OK, he knows his stuff. He's thorough. I know the stuff that he got in and I interviewed him on my podcast. No mercy. And he fessed up to his role in it. He told me what was accurate, what wasn't. Uh, I'd encourage anybody to go to No Mercy podcast where I interviewed him. He was one of my first interviews in early October where he highlighted, you know, what he did and what he didn't do. I'm telling you right now, if I was CNN, I'd forgive him and I'd ask him to come back because I think he's damn good television. I think he's far more knowledgeable about politics than I could ever hope to be. And I think that people like that would deserve strong consideration ahead of somebody like myself. But if you told me that, you know what, it's Chris Cuomo and then, and then, and then it's Stephen A. <laughs> and, and, and I have an opportunity to learn from people like that and delve into stuff like that. I, I, I can't imagine anything that would make me want to leave ESPN because I love it so much and I love what I do, but I'd be lying if I said that, I wouldn't consider embracing a challenge like that. I, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said that. I'd definitely at least consider it. What about politics, political office? No, no. You know why? Because I got to run for election, man. It's not the job. <laughs> Nightmare. It's the campaign. It's not the job. Right. It's the campaign. I'm confident. I, I, listen, you call me, what, everybody call me crazy. I am not trying to proclaim I'm some aficionado that knows it all. Hell, I wouldn't even know how to pronounce most of their names until they taught me for crying out loud. I talk about elected officials across the world. You know what I mean? World leaders. You know, I, I get that. But Aiden, what I'm saying to you is that, A, my heart will be in the right place. B, I would think about what's good for America, not just a segment of America. C, I'd have a hell of a staff. <laughs> I'm talking about when you talk about the the ambassador to the UN or, you know, the ambassador to another country, or you're talking about my treasury secretary, the head of my education department. I mean, the list goes on and on national security, my defense secretary, or, oh, oh my, oh Lord have mercy. I'd have, uh, because I would go, I would find the people that know. And what I would do is I would pick, the best. And not only that, it wouldn't be partisan. See, there would be confused. I would be the one making decisions, but there would be a potpourri of opinions that are brought together. I'd want to hear all sides before I reached a decision. I'm that kind of guy. I don't want to hear people who are just like minded and telling me what I want to hear or telling me what, si what, what side they believe I tilt on. No, I want it all. And that way I make the best decisions in the interest of America. I wouldn't be narcissistic. I wouldn't be about what I could get out of it. I would be about making America better.
a hell of a lot better than what it is. And, and, and that goes for the black community, the white community, the Hispanic community, the Asian community, everybody, the Jewish community, everybody. I'd find, I, I would be committed to finding a way for everybody to understand you need to compromise somebody. There's some things you're going to get that you like. And there's some things you're going to have to deal with that you don't like. But it's all in the best interest of the collective whole. I don't think I could ever get elected having that approach. But if I didn't have to campaign, do I think that I would be a hell of a president? Yes, because the elected officials would respond to what the people wanted to hear. And if you have influence over their constituency, they're going to capitulate to some degree to what you want because they'd be scared that they'd be booted out of office. And the one thing that I would have in my pocket, you ain't beating me on the debate stage. That ain't going to happen. And you're not going to reach the audience the way that I believe I'm capable of reaching the audience. I'm going to win those two categories. We mentioned CNN before. I just want to go back to that real quick. What did you think of Don Lemon's comments about women being in their prime? That, that hurt got me. A lot of shit for? <laughs> that hurt me because I like Don Lemon. Don Lemon, I've been on his show on several occasions. Um, he's interviewed me many times. I thought he had a good show on CNN following Cuomo, by the way. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. North. Obviously, um, they struggled in the ratings after Cuomo left and after Trump lost the election. And yes, America, he lost the damn election. OK, don't listen to him. He lost. Um, having said all of that, I'd say this to you. What Don Lemon said was incredibly irresponsible and incredibly wrong. First of all, in talking about Nikki Haley and talking about, and I'm not piling on, I don't wanna throw shade on him. It was a mistake. I think he should be forgiven. Let him go on and live his life. These people that want him to lose his job because of it and all that stuff, he messed up y'all. We all mess up. I mean, people need to get over it. But to, to, to highlight what he said, Nikki Haley, 51 years of age, former governor for South Carolina, she's beyond her prime. That was just stupid. First of all, 20, 30s, 40s. He said, that's when a woman's in their prime. I know some women in their 40s and their 50s that look a hell of a lot better than some women in their 20s. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. So that age has nothing to do with it. That's number one. Number two, She's not some runway model for Victoria's Secrets or, 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 or some other magazine or SS Magazine or something. This is a presidential candidate and a former governor, the first lady of a state. What are you talking about? She's beyond her prime. What's the matter with you? You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the Supreme Court until her 80s. We've got folks there now that's in their 70s and 80s. You know, we have elected officials. I don't know if it's uh, uh, Representative Feinstein or whoever it is that's like 89 years of age and just decided they ain't going to run for office again. We see elected officials considerably older than Nikki Haley. It made absolutely positively no sense. And last but not least, if you're a young lady, you know, we talk and we allude to a lot of things that can hurt people sometimes, that can be damaging to people sometimes. I can't think of too many things more damaging than telling a young lady that once you get into your 40s, your days are over. 
which is essentially what he what was intimated when he said what he said. And that's why I was unfortunate. I never dreamed in my wildest dreams that he would say something like that. Um, I think it was incredibly wrong. I'm glad he apologized for it. I think he recognizes the error of his ways. Um, and I think that he's earned the, the the right to get a second chance and to be left alone as opposed for people out there trying to end his career because he made that mistake. But it was a colossal, colossal error on his part. And there is no doubt about that. Now, I want to ask you a little bit of an out of the blue question. Sure. It, I am an admirer of your style. Mm-hmm. Uh I was watching one of your interviews on Fox News, and I think you're probably the only person in history to have worn Tom Brown on a cable news program. Uh, I know that you went to FIT. Do you have a stylist or an ESPN wardrobe, or do you dress yourself? I dress myself. Um, I've got I've got um, a guy by the name of Char- uh, Charlie Hallman at Neiman Marcus in Garden State uh, Garden State Mall at the Neiman Marcus at Garden State Mall, I give him a lot of credit because he was the one that approached me about changing my style years ago. And if it were not for him, um, I don't know if I would have fully appreciated the Tom Ford suits, the Brioni suits, stuff like that, that I have in my repertoire. Although I also have, you know, other things that I just have somebody make for me. Um, But for the most part, I pick out my own stuff. I decide what I'm going to wear. I decide whether I like the fit or I don't like the fit. And sometimes like I like my slacks a little bit baggier than I like the straight legged suit pants. When I'm wearing the suit pants, I like the straight. And when I'm wearing a suit, I like the straight leg pants. When I'm wearing a blazer or the tie and slacks, I like the slacks to be a little bit looser because I like to have that casual feel when I'm wearing a blazer as opposed to that suit feel. And so that that, that is... That's all me. That's how I like to roll. If I could squeeze in one last question. No, go ahead. Take your time. You've had a remarkable career. Mm -hmm. What is the secret to success in journalism or broadcasting from your perspective? Well, in today's day and age, I would tell you um, the secret to success is hunkering down, being focused, but more importantly, making sure it's accompanied with thick skin. I don't mean this literally, but it literally happened. Jesus couldn't please everybody. And you have to accept the fact that you could be telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, and somebody will still call you a liar. Somebody will still call you ill-informed. Somebody will still challenge your ethics and your morality when it comes to what you've said because they don't like it. Even if they can't deny it, you have to understand that and you have to understand what the tenets of journalism really come associated with. Yes, I'm a pundit and I'm a commentator and I have a sports show and all of this other stuff, but I've been associated with the field of journalism for 30 years. They teach you from day one. If you're looking to be liked, this is not the business for you. They make that very, very clear. And so when you know that you can't be about the business of trying to get people to like you, I don't want to be hated. I don't want to have enemies, but I can't worry about whether I'm going to be disliked or have enemies. If what I'm doing is telling the truth that's pertinent to my job, 
there are a lot of things that I cover on a daily basis. And even though I'm talking about the subject matter, meaning a person, certain intel that comes with that person is none of my damn business. And I would never reiterate it. It's personal stuff that you find out. and all. No, got nothing to do with that. That's none of my business. It's your business. Live your life. Be happy. But strictly as it pertains to my business, if you're a basketball player and you shoot two for 20 and you've been shooting 25% from the field over the last month, damn it, deal with it. Now, I didn't say why. You could have been drinking. You could have been hoeing around. You could have been lazy and never worked out. You could have been, it could have been a lot of things. It's none of my business when it's your personal business. But what you put on public display is my business. And as long as I make sure that I don't cross those lines, that I don't get personal, then I can't worry about what you like and dislike when it comes to doing my job. That's what I mean by tough skin. And if you don't have it, you don't belong in this business. Because especially with the advent of social media and beyond, what goes on now more than ever before is spin. The truth could be right in front of somebody's face. Literally, the sky could be blue. And somebody on the other side is going to deny that it's blue. And you have to accept that is a reality that comes with the world that we're living in. You have to accept it, embrace it, and be ready to march forward with thick skin that allows you to shrug off the shrapnel of venom and criticism and the debris from that as often as you possibly can. If you can't do that, you're not going to make it and you need to find something else to do. Stephen A. Smith, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Stephen A. Smith on Mediaite.com.